0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Michael Mendez, author of Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthen the Environmental Justice Movement, published in 2020 by Yale University Press. Dr. Mendez, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, it's such a pleasure
0: to be here. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Well, I'm an assistant professor of environmental policy and planning at uh, UC Irvine, as you uh, mentioned. And I really come to uh, this book, my policy work, my, my academic work from the embodied and lived experience. I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, in California, uh, in uh, communities, Latino communities that, that face multiple environmental uh, threats. And I often was growing up seeing uh, activists, residents, really protesting from the sighting of uh, uh, toxic uh, uh, landfills and toxic properties um, uh, trying to really understand how these situations originated to develop alternatives and to imagine new environmental futures so that experience growing up in uh, and these environmental justice communities uh, seeing various forms of environmental racism really motivated me to question uh, why these inequities in our urban and natural environments exist and why they were disproportionately affecting low income and uh, communities of color
0: great so your book is about climate change from the streets. And this is a perspective that you're contrasting with what you call a carbon reductionist perspective that often dominates climate change policy. Cause, so, could you tell us a bit about sort of the differences between these two perspectives? And, you know, why is this view from the streets important? And what does it show us that the carbon reductionist view misses out on?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, carbon reductionist uh, focus is really this idea that in climate policy, As we are at facing this existential threat of uh, climate change and impacts to our global environments this idea that climate change policy itself becomes a very myopic type of uh uh, a political project in which individuals policymakers scientific experts and other experts are trying to address Um, The causes of climate change, primarily global greenhouse gas emissions, without really understanding the contextual aspect, understanding that climate change is happening in larger societies, um, that's affecting multiple social, political and economic systems. And that understanding that these greenhouse gas emissions are primarily coming uh, from a fossil fuel economy that not only creates greenhouse gas emissions, but also local pollutants that stay at the local level that affects people's health. So there's often this idea uh, to bifurcate global pollution strategies from local pollution strategies. And we often see that happening in climate change. Uh, And in particular, when uh, governments, uh, particularly state and local governments, are putting in a lot of resources on this new environmental uh, uh, mitigation uh, paradigm. And really often taking resources and energy away from um, local pollution strategies that are affecting um, people's health, um, ineffective strategies that have been uh, ineffective for decades, but putting in all those resources to this very myopic, very carbon reductionist uh, approach, a, a reductive approach, without really trying to uh, link the various systems in which these environmental uh, inequalities are, are occurring to different communities and dis- and creating disparate al- outcomes. So uh, con- uh, contrasting... Um, it, a climate change from the streets uh, approach really looks at a holistic approach, understanding that climate change is happening in a larger society. That a fossil fuel economy is not only creating global pollutants, but also local pollutants for the most part that is affecting people's health. So it looks at a, a multi-prong or multi-benefit type of uh, reduction strategies so that looks, of course, at reducing carbon um, uh, carbon emissions, uh, but also the co-pollutants of a fossil fuel economy like NOx, SOx, particulate matter that affects people's health. And it, uh, this climate change from the streets approach in contrast to a carbon reductionist approach um, is not only holistic, but also uh, brings in various um, types of a, a, uh, knowledges into those policy discussions, the data gathering, as well as the the solutions. So under a reductionist uh, type approach to uh Carbon um uh, to uh carbon mitigation or climate change only scientific experts policy elites are able to uh, do pop problem definitions gather data and of course create the corresponding solutions but under a streets under a climate change from the streets uh type of worldview you you bring in those individuals that are first and hardest hit uh from the impacts of climate change so really creating opportunities to have this more holistic. Uh, approaches to climate change, approaches that are not just focused on market-based mechanisms, on cost-effectiveness um, that often are uh, put it, put forward at the expense of equity. So looking at uh, approaches to have um, policy strategies, again, that are cost-effective, but not uh, uh, at the expense of local communities of color or equity or justice.
0: Yeah, as I was reading that Uh, Section of the book, I was thinking about how often I hear people talk about, well, it doesn't matter where the CO2 is emitted because it's all just, you know, goes up to the global scale and that the way that kind of distances climate change and climate policy from the things that people actually experience. And you talk a lot about the idea of, of knowledge and experiences of environmental pollution being embodied for the people that you're i'm talking about in the book
1: yeah, yes definitely um this idea of under carbon reductionism this idea that climate change is not multi-scale that that uh, carbon emissions uh and re- uh, emission reduction strategies are geographically neutral and exactly what you're saying that since uh carbon emissions which is the most abundant greenhouse gas emissions in our atmosphere is global in nature. So it makes uniformly, uh, it's released of, you know, from the fossil fuel sources, it's released into the atmosphere, mixed uniformly into a global atmosphere. So it doesn't matter where you reduce carbon emissions so long as you reach that global target. So you can do all your emission reductions um, in a wealthy community like Malibu or Beverly Hills, or you can do them in disadvantaged low-income communities such as South Los Angeles, Boyle Heights, or or Compton. Um, But here under uh, an embodied uh, equity perspective, it really matters where you 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 reduce your carbon emissions, because, again, that idea that climate change is happening in large society, affecting other types of systems through other forms of, of pollution. And understanding that we we have a strategic opportunity to have a multi-pronged, multi-benefit environmental policy that is leading with equity and centering these communities of color that for decades have been uh, experiencing uh, pollution burdens from local pollution. And now the immediate impacts of climate change um, uh, uh, that's happening to them on an everyday uh, basis as well. So that this idea of really honoring that embodied experience that people, it's not just that they experience this, but they're actually embodying them in their health, uh, in their children's health and, and in their communities and in sort of all aspects of, it, that, um, uh, of their lives.
0: Okay. And the case studies that make up this book are drawn from California. So why is California a good place to study these issues and then, what can those of us in other states, like I'm in Pennsylvania, uh, or even you know people outside the United States, what can they learn from the experiences of California?
1: Great. So uh, this this book that really. Uh, Foregrounds people place in power in the context of climate change and inequality, and yes, it is focused largely on California. But again, through a multi-scalar analysis, looking at how California, as a, a prominent environmental global leader, has uh, has had uh, opportunities to expand its uh, uh, its climate change programs to reach other uh, countries, such as those in the global south, which we can talk about a little bit later. But generally. California really is a productive uh, uh, case to examine how the human dimensions of climate change and policy unfold. California is the fifth largest economy in the world, and it's it's the only U.S. state to implement a comprehensive program of regulatory and market-based mechanisms to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And California, as you know, uh, has has consistently been um, at the forefront of broader national and global environmental experimentation. And the state's cap and trade system, a central market based mechanism for reducing carbon emissions uh, reductions, is the third largest in the world after the European Union and China. And as you may have read in the book, you understand that this this cap and trade program has been especially contentious in debates within California, uh, within the state uh, with supporters that emphasize its global reach and cost effectiveness and detractors that criticize its inequitable effects on specific local communities and demographic groups. So California's prominence in climate change policy makes it an ideal place to investigate uh, such dyna- uh, such dynamics and disputes and their roots in differing climate change worldviews. So through this case because California's you know very uh, prominent in environmental uh, policy making uh, for decades, particularly since the 60s and 70s. Um, California has really uh, led the country uh, uh, on what we think about environmentalism and how um, really showing how our environmental policy is infused with social commitments and values. In a sense, our environmental protection paradigms are reflective of our own individual worldviews. So a big topic in the book that I, 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 I write about is this idea of climate change worldviews understanding that these individuals that are are are, are all environmentalists either if they're the, uh, traditional environmentalists such as the, the natural uh, from NRDC or EDF or the Sierra Club or their environmental justice uh, groups and activists they are all um, environmentalists in a sense but the the thing is they they fundamentally are coming coming from structural locations that are worlds apart and their view or conceptualization of the environment of nature or climate change itself is quite different because of that embodied and lived experience. And because of these differing climate change worldviews, there's often conflict uh, that occurs in developing and crafting climate change policy. And oftentimes that, uh, that crafting of, of policy is really focused on utilitarianism really creating the greatest uh, the greatest goods for the greatest number of people. So that really looks at the majority population and not looking at those communities that are most disenfranchised, most marginalized and experiencing the most impacts from climate change. And so this conflict has been trying to recenter people of color and these environmental agendas and debates. And that's very uh, uh, symbolic and very relevant to all places in the United States and even globally these differences in culture and difference in values, a difference in uh, worldviews is uh, creating conflict in all types of policy issues, not just about climate change, but I use that example um, based on my experience of working uh, nearly 15 years in the Sacramento State Capitol, where I got to see businesses, governments, and NGOs really come together to understand um, what climate change has, uh, means to them and how that is infused in the policy making process.
0: Okay, that's, that was a great answer because that touched on a whole bunch of things that I now want to kind of circle back to and ask you about in a little more detail Um, so first i want to go back to the idea of these sort of co-benefits that come from not just looking at carbon emissions on their own in isolation from other sorts of pollution so could you talk about what are some of these other um you know other environmental impacts that can be addressed along with uh, the carbon emissions and what kind of effects are they having on these communities?
1: Sure, uh, for the most part, not always. It's not a one to one, but for the most part, a, a fossil a fossil fuel com- uh, combustion is driving uh, uh, hu- human caused climate change, um, primarily through the release of uh, greenhouse global greenhouse gas emissions, and and also at the same time, uh, they're also a. Re- uh, re- uh, releasing into the local atmosphere that stays at the local level, particulate matter, uh, PM2.5, uh, 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 NOx, SOx, uh, some of the precursors of smog. And these, uh, these uh, what is often called uh, climate change co-pollutants, uh, can create uh, health and respiratory uh, diseases such as asthma. Uh, for uh, sensitive populations that are living on a daily basis next to some of these polluting uh, fossil fuel uh, facilities. So particularly now that we see um, this pandemic, uh, the, the last two years, you know, there's been great uh, research out of Harvard and then the University of Mich- uh, Minnesota, I believe, has, uh, that studied environmental justice communities, these individuals that have been living next to these fossil fuel facilities um, combustion facilities for years, if not decades, and how that has compromised uh, their respiratory health and made them more vulnerable uh, to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, which we know it's a respiratory disease. So that creates sort of this compounding of issues. So um, those are sort of the issues that we're trying to see. Uh, 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 What I talk about in the book is how um, these processes are not only creating uh, global impacts, but also local impacts that are affecting individuals. So that's primarily on sort of the the, the immediate uh, pollution mitigation side, but now um, looking at sort of climate induced disasters or climate adaptation, adapting communities from the threats of uh, extreme weather events and extreme events such as wildfires, Um, Heat waves, drought, um, uh, uh, more intensifying hurricanes, and again, just like uh, some of this uh, pollution, um, these impacts extreme weather events and extreme uh, events are also disproportionately uh, um, harming the same people that have been living with poor air quality and other forms of environmental um, pollution. And this is a strategic opportunity to really, again, recenter our uh, environmental protection paradigms to lead with these communities that are most harmed and, and acknowledging and being honest that our existing policies are prioritizing some lives over others. And primarily that has been white and wealthy communities
0: and not low-income and communities of color. Okay. And so you... Uh you describe this climate change from the streets kind of perspective and also talk about the way that it gets to make a difference in policymaking involves a lot of collaboration and coalition building between the different individuals and groups that are bringing this perspective to the table. So can you give us an example to illustrate how this kind of coalition building can happen, how it can make a difference in climate change policy?
1: Great. Um, well, the subtitle of my book is How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthen the Environmental Justice uh, Movement. So um, I, li- I like to paraphrase from Dr. Robert Bullard, who often is considered the, the godfather of the environmental justice uh, field of research. He, you know, I'm paraphrasing. He says, you know, it, it, regulators didn't wake up just one day and decide, oh, I'm going to advance justice and equity for these low-income and communities of color. Uh, What uh, traditionally happens, and I document this extensively in my book, is that it usually starts off um, from a a point of conflict, you know, pressuring uh, uh, policy elites and um, and, um, traditional environmental groups and businesses, of course, to do better, to have more protective measures and resources for these communities. And that could either be through protesting, direct advocacy, uh, introducing uh, ab- ad- adversarial tactics, uh, such as uh, very stringent uh, legislation. So um, creating coalitions with uh, representatives, elected officials that are more aligned um, with their views and concerns of these environmental justice communities uh, and and trying to build that support and g- garner um, support for changing some of these uh environmental protection paradigms so in california primarily this this has been achieved with the changing demographics again california sort of being at the forefront of uh, not only environmental issues but also of our, our diversity and our changing po- our politics what happens in california often it's anywhere between 10 to 20 years ahead um, of what the rest of the united states is doing so this, these changing demographics and in the state legislature was a key issue uh, with the uh, with the passage of term limits in California that that really uh, changed the dynamic, the racial dynamics in the state legislature. I came in in the early 2000s to really see that firsthand, not only in terms of our legislators. Um, um, being more representative in terms of Latino, African American, and the A- uh, Asian Pacific Islanders in the legislature, but also staff and staff key uh, positions um, in the, st- the state capitol and regulatory bodies, as well, even in what they call the third house and lobbying organizations, both public and private institutions. And that changing demographic, which is we now see that was about over 20 years ago, we've now seen that being reflected um, throughout the United States and creating these forms of conflict between uh, people, again, with different worldviews coming from different structural locations of what environment, what nature means, what climate change uh, is, if they even acknowledge it in some places. So. um, In the book, I I, I talk about opportunities of how these new legislators, primarily Latino legislators that were representing um, some of these rural and urban environmental justice communities, really demanding um, uh, uh, from other legislators, primarily white environmentalists and um, uh, environmental groups, to center people of color in their work. And they developed strategic partnerships with these environmental justice activists and started proposing legislation, or uh, more strategically, uh, tried to uh, consolidate their power base and started uh, withholding votes from key environmental and climate change legislation uh, until these groups um, acknowledged and uh, tried to center people of color and, and these policies and uh, legislation. So that's like a very oppositional and very conflict-driven process. And that last, it still continues today, but at the uh, at, at its height, it was between uh, 2005 and 2012, and 14. And sort of these, these power struggles, the uh, consolidation of power, the ascension of Latino legislators um, being at the forefront of climate policy and being the ones that eventually started to author all the significant climate change, uh, not all, but the majority of the si- significant climate change legislation in the state of California were um, uh, authors of uh, legislators of color. And so that, that conflict-driven process eventually uh, they became a force to reckon with and th- the sorts of collaboration started to happen, at least at the state level, um, where um, where um, groups were more willing to work on this equity driven uh, focus and legislation and, and know and they knew that their legislation would never pass if it didn't have the equity driven and then at the local level in places like Oakland and Richmond, California, which are both in Northern California, uh, th- these activists were instrumental in lobbying in Sacramento. But also at the, at the local level, they were uh, creating uh, climate change experiments and, uh, around uh, affordable housing and transit-oriented development. Oakland, for example, was the first um, city in, in, the, in the country to advocate that affordable housing at transit was a climate mitigation and ballot climate mitigation strategy. So the idea here was that Oakland, a very dense area, very diverse area, wanted to have more transit near houses and more walkable areas that people can walk bike, or take transit. And, uh, they were creating these, uh, transit centers. So basically housing, uh, commercial and jobs around a transit hub, like a subway. And when they were creating this, they were primarily doing this and established na- neighborhoods with a, a large population base um, to support transportation, transit. And these were primarily African-American and Latino neighborhoods. So essentially, this was really fueling gentrification or more, more accurately displacement of, of, of these individuals, that um, uh, 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 displacement in terms of affordable housing units. Um, as well as uh, individuals that were relying heavily on transit, either bus or rail. And what it was doing is creating this shell game where um, they would create these transit uh, hubs and uh, new market-based housing, market-rate housing, and displace uh, low-income people and push them out to the suburbs uh, where they would rely on cars because there was no transit. Um, and they would essentially uh, create uh, uh, lower uh, the GHG, uh, Somewhat in the city, and then create more GHG emissions regionally. So, a sort of a, a not only displacement of people, but a displacement of uh, carbon emissions as well. So, they did. They get the Environmental Justice Group start to team up with affordable housing advocates and did analyses that talked about this this uh, displacement of people and displacement of or or shell game of carbon emissions reductions, and were able to. Get the city council to acknowledge that as uh, affordable housing as a climate solution and then eventually scale that up to sacramento and its various uh, 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 funding and policy initiatives at at the statewide level so that really shows how at the local level a group of passionate people come together to experiment and hopefully have success in that climate experiment and then other people see it and it's replicated um, to other places so that's another example of and and sort of the multi-scale analyses uh, that is happening in uh, uh, California and how California is really leading on climate experimentation.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a great case study of why it's so important to have this sort of complete context and not just looking at, you know, greenhouse gas emissions in some very narrow uh, kind of sense, because, you know, if they had stayed so narrowly, they wouldn't have even really, Address the greenhouse gas problem. But once they incorporated all of those other issues that are connected to it, you got a, a solution that was better for all of those uh, things that people care about.
1: Yes. And, and I definitely think that. And, you know, I often, I, when I do my book talks, I often uh, kind of contextualize uh, the climate crisis and how, you know, at the federal level, you know, people have proposed the Green New Deal as a radical proposal to decarbonize decarbonize our economy and address poverty and inequality. and But I also argue that there's nothing new about the Green New Deal because groups like in California for almost 20 years have been pushing a, a form of green, a green New Deal in California for nearly two uh, decades, trying to uh, pressure local government and state government to integrate an equity frame and climate change solutions. So again, yes, I'm highly supportive of the Green New Deal, but in a sense, um, there was a long history, particularly in California and New York and a couple other places of local activists really pushing state and local governments to have an equity frame in climate change um, uh, policy since at least 2004.
0: Yeah, and that's a great lead-in to the next thing that I wanted to ask about, which was this idea of experimentation. That you kind of talk about California as a place where we have these kind of experimental spaces for policymaking. And so I just like if you could talk a little bit more about the role of experimentation uh, in, in policymaking. So it's it's interesting. So California does have this long history and often as a, it's,
1: if it were a country, it would be a fifth largest economy. As I mentioned earlier, it has the third largest cap and trade system after the European Union and China. And, you know, policy elites often see themselves, uh, see the state as a nation state. That is, it's not operating at, uh, at the level of other states. Uh, It bypasses what's going on at the federal level because of, Inertia and action and sees itself at operating like France or Spain or Germany or uh, or even Australia, and they're quite active at the United Nations. And so, part of the multi-scalar um, uh, po- project that I do in, in this book is really looking at how California um, activists, in particular, as well as uh, policymakers, are engaging in these global spaces, the United Nations and other um, global com- um, convening spaces to kind of spread the California climate gospel, or in some cases um, uh, try to expand its cap-and-trade system to be one of the largest in the world and uh, try to surpass the European Union. And one of the great chapters uh, in the book that uh, people seem to uh, uh, really uh, gravitate to is sort of this idea of California trying to link its cap-and-trade system to Acre, Brazil, and on Chiapas, Mexico, in terms of forest conservation projects or what's called forest offsets, which allows uh, a polluter to pay anyone else, anywhere in the world to, re- uh, uh, to re- uh, reduce uh, their emissions. So that could be uh, creating forest conservation projects in the Amazons, either in the jungles of Mexico, Chiapas, or the Amazon uh, of Brazil. So as long as they maintain um, those forests, um, then polluters can pay them to maintain those forests and per, per, uh, for at least hundred years, and then they can, can essentially uh, pay to continue pol- to pollute in the United States. So there's this globally linked idea of, of pollution uh, reduction in, within California, and also potential um, human rights violations in some of these indigenous communities that may be displaced by the monetization of some of these forest uh, conservation projects which have been very uh, questionable but uh, recently also bloomberg news as well as mit technology and review uh, magazine did great articles uh, on and analyses on sort of the validity of some of these forest offset projects Um, but besides that environmental justice groups started teaming up with indigenous rights leaders in mexico and brazil and other uh, places as California tried to expand its cap and trade system to the Global South. And one, um, they, they, they did this because California environmental justice groups didn't want to let the chevrons uh, of the world, uh, oil refineries, to be able to do business as usual and just pay uh, someone in the Global South very cheap rates to maintain these forests that are often questionable. At the same time, there also was the indigenous rights issue. Uh, ensuring that uh, indigenous people, particularly indigenous communities that are, that don't have land tenure and are not recognized by their 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 state and federal governments formally as having entitlements to those those, those forests, essentially would be displaced and pushed off, where they could monetize these uh, these areas, validate these areas, uh, you know, being able to track these areas, and, and essentially. Uh, cut these Indigenous communities um, uh, off of the, their traditional ancestral land. So in that chapter six of the book, I talk about this unique translocal coalition between California environmental justice groups and Indigenous rights leaders from uh, from several different countries, particularly Mexico and Brazil, that would come to Sacramento and other uh, global spaces that California was um, participating in to really show... to. The, the coalition of this translocal coalition together, but also the human face of carbon emissions reductions. Again, it goes against that carbon reductionist framework that uh, carbon emissions are global in nature. It doesn't impact people. Um, uh, it's geographically neutral, so there are really no impacts uh, essentially uh, from a mitigation reduction strategy that's a, a place-based and people-based. But this translocal coalition was really sort of a slap in the face to uh, regulators and um, uh, policymakers that didn't think that uh, until they saw this coalition come together and protest and testify against the expansion of California's cap-and-trade system.
0: Okay, that's another great example there. Um, So you've mentioned in a few of your other answers The fact that you've been personally involved in some of this policy making that you know this is not just an academic exercise uh, for you Uh, so but then in preparing the book you also did a bunch of additional research you did a whole bunch of interviews with various stakeholders you know from regulators to community activists and so forth so given that kind of background to how you wrote the book I have kind of a two-pronged question which is number one what do you think uh, your own personal experience being involved in this policy making you know how did that shape your perspective that you brought to the book but then also what were some of the interesting or surprising things you learned when you went from you know just having your personal experiences into expanding it into this you know a, a book where you you did all those additional interviews and so forth
1: so I'm very upfront about my embodied experience uh, uh, in this book. It's, it's front and center. Uh, I, I could not have made this book without um, that experience of working in the le- legislature to continue uh, to work in policy arenas. I'm a, currently in a gubernatorial appointee to the state's regional water uh, quality control board. And having that sort of uh, insider's view was key. Uh, sort of, if you will, looking behind the wizard, the curtain of the Wizard of Oz, um, seeing how, uh, how the sausage is made in terms of legislation, as they say. And that gave me a, a real insider's view of what it was happening, how these individuals conceptualize climate change or sort of how they strategize around climate change policy, either to um, uh, either to help environmental justice communities or to. Uh, more often uh circumvent them uh, as they, they were often seen as roadblocks so being in those 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 policy discussions hearing sort of uh the behind the scenes uh issues was was key and i think having that long history of working in sacramento um, gave me greater access than any uh academic normally would have uh, so i had a higher level of trust um in being in in being able to get interviews and have people open up about their perspectives, even though I protected um, their, for the most part, unless I sp- explicitly got a waiver from them uh, to uh, say their name, but uh, to protect their per- perspectives uh, uh, and for them to be honest. So I think that was a key issue is really under- to have that background, but then be- to become an academic and situate that into existing theoretical frameworks and, and try to understand what was going on from a, a third, from a more distance approach. So I did, you know, I'm a very uh, California focused uh, scholar, as you mentioned earlier. But what happens to California does have global implications. But when I wrote this book, I primarily wrote this book when I was at uh, uh, Yale, when I was doing my um, my fellowship there, and it was great to have that distance and to uh, have East coasters. Uh, Uh, be critical of that California perspective and for me to unpack some of the uh, data that I had more and, and tell a little bit more of that ethnographic story of the motivations that some of these policymakers, particularly Latino policymakers had and, and either defending or um, uh, promoting uh, or, um, or, being opposed to uh, environmental um, legislation. So I think that was key. And it's important to understand that worldviews that that these individuals have that I mentioned earlier are not fixed, and they can transform over time. And I I saw this happen over the 20 years that the book covers, almost 20 years that this book covers, and specifically uh, how scientific ideas such as climate change and beliefs about climate change evolve together with the representations, identities, debates, and institutions that give practical effect and meaning to uh, uh, policies such as climate change policies. So in other words, really, um, the ways in which we conceptualize climate change don't just happen. People are behind our government policies and environmental values, and they can change their minds. And so that sort of pull and tug uh, that I, I talk about in the book is sort of an evolution of the different worldviews that are considered valid in uh, climate policy making in California. And I think having that experience, both growing up in an environmental justice community, seeing it firsthand um, to uh, actually working in the levers of power, the halls of power uh, and to seeing how they, they take uh, various information and how they define something and then how they put, uh, put forward solutions.
0: All right. Well, that's kind of a, a nice optimistic note to end on to hear that people can change their minds. Um, so to wrap up our interview, uh, I'd like to ask what you're working on next. What's the next big project now that this book is out?
1: Yes. Great. Uh, no, uh, thank you. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the work that I have been doing um, uh, was focused on multiscalar approach. And my research agenda now is really evolving from policymaking around climate change mitigation that is prospective, to adopting social adapting to adapting socially vulnerable populations from the immediate impacts of climate change. Uh, and this shift in focus is necessary because impacts are happening sooner than projected and creating a public health emergency. And as you know, uh, this is uh, very important, particularly for the most. Uh, disempowered and voiceless populations. So, now my second book project and uh, research that I have done, particularly on wildfires, I ask how climate induced disasters such as heat waves, droughts, and wildfires exasperate existing inequalities disparities for undocumented Latino and indigenous migrants. In this approach, I really am um, ex- exploring how uh exploring the methods that disaster influences uh migration patterns and interactions between people in place that limit life opportunities facilitate movements and impact public health so in other words one of the main projects that i am working on is looking at how while extreme wildfire events these are the the most extreme oftentimes uh, um, uh complex fires that are coming together um in california and how how these these wildfires are disproportionately impacting Indigenous, uh, Latino, and um, Latino and Indigenous uh, undocumented migrants. So these are individuals uh, that are the some of the most disempowered and voiceless populations. But they're often um, uh, asked to labor into some of these most toxic uh, um, conditions uh, and entering into mandatory evacuation zones to safeguard crops from smoke and ash, uh, from what they call tainted wine that, uh, that affects the taste and smell of wine. But nobody's really looking at, at how uh, this type of work, working in these toxic hazardous conditions, are also tainting the lungs of these undocumented migrants. Um, so this work um, I've been working on for the last, uh, almost for three years now, um, is really looking at policy-relevant research. And we've had a lot of great opportunity um, to pre- present our findings on these impacts to undocumented farm workers and other migrants and, and trying to ask for a specific policy change as these uh, intensifying wildfires are colliding with, ha- with harvest season each year.
0: All right, Well, so wildfire is actually one of my research areas. So I will definitely want to have you back on to talk about that project uh, once you've published that. Uh, but it's, it's been published,
1: really so we have our oh, first okay. article in uh, GeoForum, which is one of the leading human geography uh, journals, and I co-wrote that with in, uh, uh, migrant uh, indigenous migrant rights groups and in, in an environmental justice group. So they were at the forefront of one of the uh, the uh, the fires in California, the Thomas Fire, which until recently was considered the second largest wildfire in California's history by acreage. And then last year, uh, several fires uh, uh, overtook that. And I believe it's now the eighth largest fire in the span of less than one year. Um, And uh, so it's published in GeoForum. We have similarly uh, uh, another article in the National Academies Journal of Issues in Science and Technology. And if you're interested in seeing, um, I I gave the Endowed David Lecture for the National Academies back in November. So the, the David Endowment, David Lecture um, for the National Academy. So if you just Google that in my name, uh, my lecture uh, with the National Academy should come out as well.
0: All right, well, I'll go check that out as soon as we're done recording here because yeah. uh, that all sounds really great. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: All right, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure
0: an honor. You thank t- you. You just heard a conversation with Michael Mendez, author of Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthen the Environmental Justice Movement, published in 2020 by Yale University Press.